0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly fascinating, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Lance Blythe on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Chiricahua and Hanos, Communities of Violence in the Southwestern Borderlands, 1680 to 1880. Lance, welcome to the show.
1: No, thank you. Thanks for
0: having me. Um, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Certainly. Uh, I am a, a Ph.D. in history, uh, working on uh, primarily trained in uh, colonial Mexico and uh, northern Mexico and U.S. Southwest. Uh, I call myself a borderlander now. Uh, I am employed as the command historian for uh, North American Aerospace Defense Command and U.S. Northern Command, and uh, A number of your listeners probably know NORAD, as it's called, uh, which is a binational command uh, with the responsibilities for aerospace warning, aerospace control, and uh, maritime warning for North America uh, around the United States and Canada. We're coming up on our 55th year of that uh, alliance uh, uh, and working together. And also, uh, I'm dual-headed as the commander-starring for U.S. Northern Command, which is a geographical combatant command. The United States has one of six of them. And we're responsible for homeland defense, civil support, and security cooperation in an area of responsibility that includes the United States, Canada, Mexico, uh, the Bahamas, and, uh, uh, which also includes Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, but not Hawaii, which belongs to another command. <laughs> and so um, with that in mind, I will make the point that all opinions I state here are my own, are no way represent the official position of NORAD, U.S. Northern Command, the Canadian Ministry of National Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense, or either gov- the government of either country, Canada or the United States.
0: I imagine you have a little note card in front of you that says, say this,
1: yeah, well, those are things we try to make very clear uh, yeah. whenever we do talk.
0: And so you were in the service before you were in the service, so to say.
1: Yes. So, uh, so I am a civilian about employee about yeah. uh-huh. of, of the Department of Defense. Um, I graduated from undergrad in 1988, went on an extended study break in the Marine Corps in 1993, <laughs> yeah. uh, Gulf War <laughs> L.A. riots, uh, came back to grad school in 1993, coming up on 20 years oh my lord mm-hmm. uh and a uh, just basically had no idea what i was going to do but thought this would be a good chance to 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 uh, have a break and got my masters just uh, cr- i always say i crammed a 2 year program into 4 years and uh, then <laughs> after that i uh, i ended up going on to, to grad school and to for a phd vaguely where there were historians in the federal government never really pursuing it and then Kind of stumbled into the opportunity about the time I was finishing my dissertation to go to work for the Department of Air Force as a historian. In um, large part, I, I was happy to do it because they allowed me to stay out west, where I've grown mm-hmm. up in the area. I, um, nothing against other parts of the country, but I just find them too green and too humid. Yeah, right. For for my living, so I started working uh, down in Albuquerque initially. <laughs> yeah. For a few years, and then uh, came up here uh, about five years ago, and been the command historian for about a year now. So yeah. it's 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 um it is it's good work for a historian. Um, I'm dealing with the present, which is interesting for someone who overwhelmingly prefers to study the past.
0: Uh-huh, so uh-huh. that's interesting. I, I imagine they just love you being ex-military and then having a PhD. And yeah,
1: yeah, it does. It did make the hiring process a lot easier.
0: Yeah, I imagine um, it did. Yeah, uh, it, and I also like what you said about the extended, uh, sort of, what did you call it? Oh, an extended study break. Study yeah. break. Yeah, I always yeah. tell people that if they're thinking about a gap year, they should make it a gap four years. Don't oh, <laughs> just join the military. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> get paid while you're screwing around. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know about screwing around, but uh, it's it, is, it oh, there's is a lot of that. Trust me. Yeah, I mean, I know I know that there is. Yeah, but it is a, it is a good opportunity for a lot of young people. I, I know that. Yes, for a fact. yes, it yeah. definitely is. So uh, no, don't regret it whatsoever. Yeah. So tell us how you came to write this book.
1: Uh, I came to write the book uh, really out of two, uh, two uh, impetus, impeti. Uh The first is one I think will be very familiar to a number of your listeners, and that is, by the time I was finishing my dissertation, I was sick and tired of the dissertation. <laughs> I didn't want to deal with it. I wrote it primarily on the Presidio of Hanos, uh, looking at them, and I, would just, I was tired of it, and I did not want to just turn that into a book. I felt I was in a lot of intellectual dead ends, et cetera, et cetera. So that fact combined with the fact that I went to work for the federal government where I did not have to enter into the publish or perish mm-hmm. uh, world, where I did not have to have a book, in many freed me up to do the book that I wanted to do. So I gave it about a year thinking about what I had and um, and the, uh, the Air Force gave me a lot of time to do that because they deployed me overseas for four months and as a historian in theater and so I had a lot of time to think about that. And then on the 17-hour plane flight back, uh, I started sketching out what I thought were the interesting things. And what I thought I had interesting was um, was, this, was this idea of, of violence, that that really was the central nugget. And that's how I then uh, pursued uh, working on the book, taking what I had learned from my dissertation, taking what we know um, about the Chiricahua Apache, who were, who were very well studied um, by the, uh, um, the, anth- the uh, anthropologists who were doing at the time what they thought was salvage anthropology, trying Collect all these things in the 1920s before people disappeared. That, of course, did not happen, but and put those two together around this idea of violence.
0: Mm-hmm. So, the area that we're talking about, just to situate it on a map, is what is today uh, eastern Arizona, western New Mexico, and then some of the area of. A state in Mexico that I don't yeah, remember name of
1: of, of <laughs> Northwestern uh, Northwestern Chihuahua and northeastern Sonora, so right around the boot heel of New Mexico, mm-hmm. that 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 area right down in that in the vicinity there, mm-hmm. and we're um, and we're talking again to sort of put it in again,
0: now in ethnographic uh, context, we're talking about the the coming together to use a kind of neutral phrase of uh, two different sorts of people, and one is uh, Hispanic people, and the other are these. Um, are are basically Native Americans these, uh, right. Chiricahua Apaches. So uh, let's begin the story by asking how they got there to this this well, really kind of remote area. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, if the Hano's uh, really is founded in the mid 1680s, and it is founded by primarily by refugees from the New Mexico revolt, uh, Pueblo revolt, in New Mexico five years prior. Um, that is. In 1680, the Pueblo Indians rose up, uh, drove out the Spanish who had been there since the, about, 16, about 1610 or so. And uh, those folks retreated down to El Paso, down into, um, at that time, the province of Nueva Vizcaya, today the, the state of Chihuahua. And many of them stayed, and many of them ended up going over where there was water. As you pointed out in your opening remarks, it's a very dry area. So there was water over a place called Casas Grandes, and... Uh, land so they could they could farm and survive then you had to grow your own food mm-hmm. and in doing that put pressures on the local uh, Indians uh, Suma hokume hano Indians were the other group there and another um, a, a, another uh, a rebellion as the Spanish saw it, an uprising or a resistance as, as the native people saw it broke out and in response to that there was a decision to put together a, a, a permanent military garrison or presidio now, see, are presidios. San Francisco is the most famous one, but there are presidios in Tucson, there are presidios in Santa Fe, San Antonio. To this day, uh, those are towns in the U.S. that have were, were presidio uh, communities to begin with, mm-hmm. and so they they were founded there. Uh, and that is Hanos. Chiricahua are are uh, a group that uh, of Athapascan peoples, Athapascan speaking peoples, and they all begin to migrate down sometime. 1200 uh, uh, of the common era. They come south, uh, worked out how and when and where, we're still not sure, but by roughly 1500, just before we get there, there's very clear there are uh, Apache peoples on the southern plains, and they split into a couple groups, Navajo and really Apache are the two large groups that come out of that, and this group of Apaches that would become Chiricahua, had moved south, had moved over across the Rio Grande during the course of the 17th century. And when the Spanish left, well, they had been in the horse raiding and trading business with their Plains cousins, and so they, in many ways, followed farther south to go uh, continue on the, this, this 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 relationship, yeah. often violent, sometimes not, uh, with the uh, Hispanic settlers, and so both by roughly 1700 are living roughly in the same areas. And the, and the people could become known as Chiricahua, settle around a mountain uh, range that the Spanish called Chiricagui, which I understand is Opata, an uh, Indian word for, for the wild turkeys. And so hmm. that, um, the Spanish name, typically named Indian groups by the, uh, a, a, the mountain range, they seem to be at the center of their territory, even if it was or wasn't.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's talk a little bit, uh,
0: uh, let's put it further in context about what I guess I might call life ways. Um, the, uh, the Chiricahua, uh, they were. Um, did they practice agriculture? Were they pastoral nomads? Did they deal entirely in trading? How, how did
1: they make right. their living? How did they live? Well, they, the Chiricahua uh, incredibly flexible. I mean, they would do whatever they would do whatever they needed to do to survive. Um, and as you point at the Southwest, it is a relatively rough ter- rough terrain. Chiricahua were uh, very flexible. They, they undoubtedly farmed. Um, Uh, there's just too many references to cornfields for example Mm -hmm. in spanish documents now what they probably didn't do is they didn't uh they did not stay put and so what they would do is in the spring they would be down in lower and they would have set out the winter in, in in the lower elevations where it was warmer they would move into an area where it would the rains would come and the water would come and they would they would plant plant their plants corn probably squash also and um then as this, as it warmed up down below, they would just leave and move up into the higher country. So they they would exploit the entire ecological zone where they would hunt and gather and do what else they did. And um, as they gathered and made a surplus, they would make caches all over the country so they mm-hmm. could get to those things later. And then as the winter came, they would move back to to lower ground. So they, the, the women did a lot of the gathering, probably the agriculture and men did a lot of the hunting, but very marginal terrain. Um, not a lot of give in the system, and so the opportunity to go get um, valuable items from one's neighbors uh, was was very strong. And indeed, mm-hmm. the Chiricahua, um oral the oral tales, the tales they told, were, were very um, very uh, clear. They they tell how they came to be that their their uh, cultural uh, hero, Child of the Water, um, got to select. There were two mountains. Got to select where apaches would live and he chose this very barren one but it, it was recognized with had wild turkeys on it and pinion, tree you know pinion nut trees and okay i recognize that i know how to live there the other uh, his his kin of some sort uh, maybe brother maybe uncle we're not sure what killer of the enemies as he was called was he chooses gets the other mountain but then he opens it up and out comes cattle and horses and all these good things, and so basically, by that, it's that the Europeans kind of cheated <laughs> mm-hmm. and had things that, that that they didn't. So, kind of going and getting them was 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 an acceptable way. And, and, and rating was an economic activity. If you needed mm-hmm. needed something, and if you don't have a lot of of uh, a lot of give, then and then, then you do go and you need, you need, you would go rate for that. And then that, mm-hmm. what is the, the only thing of on the backside of that is Hano, like most of northwest northern Mexico, where The Hispanics practice an agro pastoralism in which they would farm, intensely farm the the bottomlands, and then let horses and cattle pretty much run wild on the mountainside, Mm -hmm. on the hills around. And so there was a lot of things to go get that were not terribly well guarded, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but but that were very important to to the Hispanics. So both were, in many ways, living in a very, very um, resource. not a not a lot of resources to be had and and both typically were try using trying to use the same land in the same way in many cases and and that may be a basis of some of the conflict mm-hmm, that, that, that occurred uh, before we move on from ethnography
0: the the Chiricahua uh, by this time, these Apaches were um, a thoroughly equine culture. They had had horses for a long time, and they thought of having horses as completely Right, natural. yeah. Horses,
1: yeah, they had definitely had them from easily from the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and what's going on in the late 17th century, 1680s, 1690s is another group, the uh, the the Shoshone uh, Comanche, are, are pushing into the southern plains. They are definitely equine. They are definitely raiding. And so the plains Apaches need horses to fight back they're getting those from from uh, from raids on the Spanish settlements, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. and and they're um and one of the and so that that's when the Spanish move south that there goes that resource they need to have and so Apaches were certainly yeah they were horses were important horses were the critical bride price uh, horses were a critical tool they were also a critical um, uh, food source Apaches mm-hmm. so, were very um, again a, a very flexible people very willing to eat horses and mm-hmm. um, there is the uh, I, well, I don't know which John Wayne movie it is but there's this uh, and where he's talking about that uh you know a white man will ride a horse and give it up then the Mexican will ride it while longer than a Comanche will ride a while longer than an Apache will come ride it more and then eat it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, oh, um, yeah I mean, that's John Wayne but it's probably relatively yeah, accurate yeah the sure of the
0: time. sure and then uh, one more question about the Chiricahua they didn't I mean there were Indians in the in the neighborhood uh, or N- Native Americans, as yeah. we should say, in the neighborhood that built cities, the Chiricahua did not do that.
1: That is correct. Yeah, these were very much a, uh, um, a nomadic people. They they did move through the time. They moved in when they moved into the area of the Southwest that we're referring to, Northern Mexico, U.S. Now, Northern Mexico, U.S. Southwest. There were um, uh, a uto speaking peoples already there. Already there, I mentioned the Hohokam the Suma Opera. And these were far more subtle peoples who farmed, uh, lived in relatively large villages and farmed mm-hmm. and so were, could be missionized. You could put a mission, a church in the middle of their village and begin to turn them into to some version of Spaniards. You didn't have that with the with, with yeah. various Apache peoples.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then one more note about the, the Hanos. Uh, this notion of the Presidio, I didn't know about it actually, but it has a resonance for somebody that studies early Russian history. When the Russians planted yes. uh, a community out there on the steppe. Uh, it was right. always a fort. Uh, yeah. It had a stockade. There was no question about it. That that's the way they built these these, these settlements. And so were, were the were the Spanish uh, actively involved in building these things, or were they um, sort of volunteer communities? And then the Spanish had to go out and protect them, which was sort of the American or the British experience. That they, the British would right. never control settlements, and people would go out, and then they'd have to protect them, and you know that kind of yep. thing.
1: Well, this yeah, this was far more along the lines of the Russian version where this was an assigned, the company was recruited, mm-hmm. had a captain and a lieutenant and a certain number of troops. They were recruited and paid by the state and sent, you know, you will live there and you will bring your families there and you will, that's where you will live. And uh, sometimes they were built as forts, more often than not, they were just built as the houses all facing each other, kind mm-hmm. of the typical, new, what we see today New Mexico Plaza, mm-hmm. where the houses wouldn't have, ex- the homes would all be next to each other, they wouldn't have any um all the windows would face the face the plaza, and the outside mm-hmm. they would 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 be, would be blank. Mm-hmm. But it was far more that some um, directed settlements that that you would find, and and the experience actually comes from um, presidios apparently come from uh, the uh, Spanish experience in North Africa in the in the 16th century, where they see some towns and some places, and now they have to defend them. Mm-hmm. They would tell a garrison troops, Spanish troops, go, go live there, mm-hmm. and and that that's where they came from. And Presidio and Later on in Mexican history, became used and Spanish. history became used for prisons, and sometimes right. the, the two get confused. But when you're talking about Northern Mexico, presidio is referring to a garrison community of folks who who lived there, were sent there, lived there, and usually recruited from there as time went on. Mm-hmm. So, is it proper to say then that 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 Hanos is kind of uh, the
0: aftermath of a failed colonization effort? Because the you know they 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 had they basically
1: escaped. I mean after the after the
0: right uprising,
1: it, yeah yeah and, and and most of them chose chose not to go back the next goes reconquered in the 1690s um and but a lot of the original colonists chose not not to go back with that reconquest
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and and it is and it is people who were who had to flee from from one uprising found themselves causing another so their their, their mindset was their initial mindset though no, that first generation was probably not very forgiving
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so uh who was the nominal authority in this area
1: was it the spanish crown in the spanish crown yes the um there was a governor a governor in uh, um, chihuahua you uh, see it at Chihuahua, and then of course that becomes the state as time goes on and then there's a captain and military commander who has um, really has that combination of civil and military powers there is a civil authority but it's it's always relatively. Weak and far more dependent upon the military authority mm-hmm. than you would find elsewhere
0: mm-hmm.
1: before we go to violence uh, how did did
0: these um, communities i 'm sure they did I, I know the answer to this question uh, did, how, how did they mix other than fighting
1: uh, yeah, and i think that's a very uh, that 's a very good question, a very good point that has to be made is that they did um, have a large number of exchanges between them they um humans, again, I point out this is a very, as you point out, this is a resource-limited environment. And in that, if someone has something you need and you can get it by trading for it, you probably will do that, not take the risk of just going and take it. So there was a large amount of, of trading that did go on, um, it probably on a very personal level. Um, and work back in work where the folks would trade, uh, you know, foodstuffs especially would be traded. Apache Apache would trade back horses or hides or skins, um, uh, for use as time goes on, different time periods. There were long periods of time in the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century where both communities lived relatively peaceably alongside each other. Uh, and and did did, did do exchanges you through through trade. Um and as, as I'm sure we'll talk about, both were probably genetic related because they, they, they did exchange uh, unwillingly in, many, in most mm-hmm. cases uh, uh, bo- population with each other. Mm-hmm. But that is the ultimate resource in these environments is people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's ex- and that's true in the Russian case as
0: well. A lot of people don't understand this, that Ru- Russia is very large. But at least in the early modern period, it was very poorly populated. So the valuable commodity was people. And mm-hmm. the state made sure that uh, its people were where it wanted them to be in the right yeah. concentrations so that they could tax them. They didn't want them wandering around.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then one more question before we actually get to the narrative itself uh, about religion. Um, were, were the Spanish, did they intend to convert these people? Did they try? Did they, I mean, how much Neat. emphasis did they put on it?
1: They There's always... In the earlier periods, there is always that desire to, um, uh, to to missionize, to turn these people into into Christians. And, and as as you know, in the early modern period, you probably wouldn't people didn't usually refer to themselves in in nationalistic terms, but rather religious ones. Mm-hmm. So, if you'd asked the the, the 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 Haneros people who lived in Hanos around 1700, "What are you?" They probably would have said Christian. They probably would have responded with that. And so, turning, getting people to be Christian was a central part of making them good into good Spanish subjects. Uh, that was always the desire, uh, but it was very difficult to implement with people who were not settled. Right, and there was no way to missionize, no way to put it. And so, it it, it was the, you you see back and forth between you know basically you know you know set a good example and they will they will become Christian and you know treat them with kindness and so forth and so that that desire to christianize was there it it really steadily seeps away as the 18th century goes until so by the end of the 18th century you you, you have um basically instructions saying look keep the priests away from the apaches mm-hmm. they're just causing problems
0: mm-hmm.
1: don't 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 have them don't try to missionize them don't try to convert them just leave them alone mm-hmm. and in many ways that becomes the uh I, I think that was just final official recognition of the reality that mm-hmm. they're, 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 that just probably wasn't something that was going to happen. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if the people of Hanos looked at the Chiricahua and sort of saw them through a religious lens—that is, they were heathens that there to be converted—at least until the 18th century—can we say anything about the way the Chiricahua saw the, the people of Hanos?
1: Uh, I, I think what the, again there there is a great a great story that that. Uh, uh, told how people came to be and that, that, that the creator makes one group of people that are Apache, he makes another that are white people and, and are Chiricahua and not Chiricahua. And he basically says, okay, Chiricahua, you will live here. White people, you will live way over there. Whenever you see each other, you will fight. Hmm. And I think that's a... It, and I suspect, I mean, you have a small group of people who have undergone... Couple centuries worth of migration south through through, through lands uh, and time so they're they're very um very wary and understandably so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think they were always prepared and and to be looked on. I, I think they looked up on Hanos and up the Mexicans really as as. Um, as as another food resource, as another yeah. resource in, in their in their in their life survival, especially by the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. they're very clear talking to their to the Americans that know, this is, these are our ranches down here. We just we go down and we ranch the Mexicans. We get what we want from them, mm-hmm. and that was always the ongoing problem for for U.S. Uh, Apache policy, which I didn't cover in the book because right, I didn't right. want to get yeah. into all of that. Right, 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 um, but. In, I think on the individual level, they did um, <clears throat> see each other they did, but on on the larger I guess civilizational level, they, they both sides thought they were they were quite different mm-hmm. and and and, um, and didn't pursue you know too close of a connection mm-hmm. well let's
0: actually start talking about violence then um, the, in the book you talk about various moments at which the violence is more intense and less intense we've been with the earliest one.
1: Um, certainly, I think the the first really intense moment is uh, are those the the, the first years um, of the of the late seventeenth century. Um, uh, number of listeners may know that the 1680s were a very um, uh, uh, there was a large crisis all across northern New Spain. Uh, Pueblo revolt comes in. Um, they know the Spanish know the French are looking for the mouth of the Mississippi. De La Salle misses it and goes to Texas uh but they're worried about that. So there is a large amount of defensive expansion. This is when the Spanish take Texas, that's why they retake New Mexico. So on that a very official level there's a lot of concern and that's why Hanos comes into being. That's another military force. And so it is it is a time of, of pacification of where you have large groups of of uh the original Indian inhabitants, Hano, Holcombe, Suma, and then you have the Apaches migrating in who are incorporating those and finding their ways ways forward. so this is at the first uh, first period of violence uh, that um, comes and goes as it goes forward but uh, pretty much it probably to what we would call a steady state if you want that by the by the middle of, of the 18th century where both sides are small-scale but uh, persistent rating uh, of, of livestock but also of, of people and this is where the evidence is the this most is the strongest for that Exchange of, of of people, where Apaches would definitely take uh, local Indians. There's good genetic evidence of a lot of the um, mothers in the first those first generations were were, were Indian women from other um, communities, mm-hmm. other Indian communities, possibly ones who had been in revolt in which the men had been killed. So mm-hmm. that was a uh, um, that, that was a way to, for for the women and their families to survive was to attach themselves to the Apaches, and also uh, through through raiding and and back and Mm -hmm. forth. And on the Spanish side, parish records are are where we see that, where you see Apaches being children being baptized, Mm -hmm. and you can follow them being raised up to the community having children and then disappearing uh, into the community, where I said by the mid-18th century, if you run the genetics, there would have been a lot of shared markers between the two, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's you know, I, mean, and, we should maybe, first
0: I was going to say, maybe we should talk a little bit about the genetic evidence, because I think a lot right. of people don't know that, uh, to a certain degree, this sort of thing, this sort of borderlands history and the history of the mixing of people has kind of been revolutionary, revolutionized by uh, modern genetics. And we're not talking about, um, uh, you, you know, uh, we're, we're, <laughs> this isn't the scary kind of genetics. This oh, is the kind yeah, of genetics no, no. <laughs> that, just, that just says who your
1: uh, people are.
0: That, that's right. all. It's just kind sort of a fingerprint.
1: Right, and the the evidence sometimes is from mitochondrial DNA, which is passed along through mothers, Uh uh, relatively unchanging. And in any genetic population, there is a set of, yeah, I I just, I'm not, I am no expert in genetics, but a set of markers um, that that you associate with different um, uh, areas of, uh, regional areas of, of, uh, um, such as there are markers associated with Europe, there are markers associated with Africa, markers associated with Asia. And,
0: um, yeah, they basically define, be
1: traced through
0: the, yeah, I was going to say I've studied this quite extensively, and they and they, I think the proper way to make people understand it is it defines your descent group, not your race yes. or anything like that. Yes. It's like this is probably where your people came from, right, And so when you see like the mitochondrial DNA or the y chromosome, which is another way to trace it, uh, mm-hmm. you can see when there's been some sort of like we'd call it interbreeding or intermixing. Right, um, yeah, I, and this is true in the Russian case as well. We can tell, for example, uh, you know a little bit about how the Russians intermingled yeah. with Finnish people, for example, this is one of the mysteries of early Russian history. to what extent did the the, the, the incoming Slavs mix with the finns and yeah. you know, and so we know that, or you know, kind of know that now we couldn 't know it before there was some there's some evidence that you can um point to in terms of linguistics, like you know th- there would be words that enter the vocabulary, and that suggests a certain amount of mixing, but this is even better evidence that there was actual g- genetic. Mixing of some sort, and as you say, right. the, the the thing that makes it a little bit, it, it kind of takes your breath away a little bit is is that in many cases this was not voluntary.
1: Yes, right, and that's and and those and, and here I'm following a lot of work by by James Brooks, for example, on on, on slaves and captives, and and we talk about and I haven't really used those words that I've I've been I've been dancing around, them. we are talking about captivity, we are talking about slavery, but we're talking about a mm-hmm. a, a, a kinship sort of slavery, where this, the, the the captive is. Someone is captured as a child, raised up in that um, in that community, uh, thinks of themselves as a member of that community, even if on the, the lower rungs. They may be raised as a servant in a household or what have you. Um, they're not able I mean, to escape. They, they they lose all those contacts uh, that they had, had had in their other one, and 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 go from there. And both sides were very, um, both communities. I, I think clearly did this. Apache were probably far more. Um, again, they needed people, so they were very willing to take people from the outside and bring them in and mm-hmm. um, and, and often you know many of these it, it, eventually it just wouldn't matter where where you had come from for for uh, on the apache side the S- uh, spanish side had a very nice caste system of gradients and in theory if you were uh, a someone who had a a, a mixed descent you would be belonged here but as people got status and got promoted they were able to start claiming oh no no I'm spanish mm-hmm um that that's my descent group is spanish and um, you know and so forth so um yes it it's very slippery evidence but i think it's just more evidence that human beings migrate and they 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 interbreed um Mm-hmm. We've discovered Neanderthal DNA now. That's sure. Smart, yeah, human no. DNA. Actually, I, so it goes yeah. way back. Yeah, I actually know the guy that did that research. About oh, DNA.
0: wow. Yeah, no, I do. I used to, yeah, no, we used to hang out a little bit in his little lab in Boston, and they, uh-huh. they, just, they discovered this. Yes, but it's actually very interesting, you know, because it's very interesting evidence in the sense that you can tell when certain groups yes. mixed and to what mm-hmm. extent they mixed. And this solves a lot of problems, which we see hinted at in other evidence, you know, for example, in the evidence of texts or in the evidence of uh, mm-hmm. existing language today. Um, it's not a hundred percent certain, but it's certainly suggestive of of certain patterns of of activity. And you know, one of the ones you mentioned is uh, and this you see in a lot of places that are borders or have been raided, is that um the women tend to be taken and the men tend to be killed.
1: Yes. And and, and I think that and that's the I mean, this is this. I mean, you're right. This genetic evidence that I only just used a small part of, but I'm I'm also quite interested in it. Shows us that this intermixing is quite normal, quite natural, happens, and that's a that's a plus thing. In our multicultural world, we tend to look at that and think, oh, that that's great. But we all Mm -hmm. have to remember there's a a dark side to that. That it often was forced. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: So I'm wondering what when when the Apaches uh, raided, uh, they would raid a community. Uh, and they would attempt to take the livestock, let's say, or take horses or whatever they were going to take, and they were also going to raid for people. How did the Spanish authorities react, and how did the locals uh, – did the locals call
1: for help, and did the Spanish respond? Yeah, a lot of that we do find. We find that, yeah, someone will come uh, riding in going, hey, there's been cattle stolen, and then so a a force will saddle up and, and head out from there. Uh, and that was a lot of this for early part of the 18th century that was a lot of what it was was these responses to to local and and, and by the time you, you're getting settlers in you're getting people who may have been in the military retired or left service, and they've, they, they then go out and start you know, farming or ranching and you start to get some movement in there and from early part of the 18th century the, the silver mines outside Chihuahua city become very important and so there's a, a demand now for agricultural supplies and surplus so the the um, the river valleys are on Hanos, so mm-hmm. and these rivers flow out of the Sierra Madre and they run they used to run to the Rio Grande, but now they end right into a, a desert yeah and so but these are very because there's water there and so they're relatively fertile and this is a place you can go grow crops, mm-hmm. raise livestock, and send it to mm-hmm. to a to a sheet at chihuahua mm-hmm. and that's that's a lot of what uh what we see even in the early eighteenth century and so these 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 other agricultural establishments me, Become established and and they they do get rated yes then they would there would be a a, a call back out to uh, to do and and there is the, the Western Apache who are related to the Chiricahua developed a very specific set of of, of verbiage about um, I mean there's rating which which is like I say economic activity and the Chiricahua kind of referred to as like oh they're out looking around that was a relatively low scale five six guys get together go. Go off and, and and take some horses, waylay someone. If they were caught, could catch them alone and, and go from there. That was the an actual uh, war party was was more formal, and and that's what I talk about in the book is is what they called fierce dancing, where you would mm-hmm. get get a, a bunch of family groups together, get them all mobilized and headed out in the direction. And and those is where you would see far more of the taking of captives mm-hmm. because you could if you're a six five six guys you take a it captive it's really hard to make sure you can get them back right No. sure so let's actually go through that narrative because the
0: chapters after um well after two are uh, arranged chronologically and you talk about mm-hmm. these different periods and what characterizes them so the fierce dancing period is about 1750 to 1785 you see right. in the book what characterizes it what happens there
1: this, this is a period of where both uh, we're, we're seeing the, the violence increases in its scale and its scope um i think uh on on the uh, Chiricahua side we're seeing uh uh, again, it's hard to know, but one has suspicions. There. There's increasing population, uh, increasing differentiation into the to this, probably the three traditional bands associated with the Chiricahua from the 19th century, um, and so you're seeing more people. That puts more demands. That puts and again, there's been more growth among the Spanish settlements. There's been more agriculture, so you see larger raiding parties. You see you see more more raids going on. Uh, and now on the Spanish side, you see reforms to try to stop that, to increase the size of the garrison, to um, have larger and more campaigns going and preemptively going out into uh, Apache lands and taking and trying to uh, trying to uh, basically seize and stop this before the raids begin. And so that's kind of that ever- upward spiral or downward spiral, as you choose to look at it, of violence that takes place in the later 18th century. And what is interesting about this is that uh, at least i write in the book i mean one of the at least how i interpret it i mean i've interpreted earlier on some of this violence is about building community getting people in well some of this later violence i think we can definitely look at it in terms of people trying to use violence to 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 uh to to situate themselves in community to basically to marry mm-hmm. that uh, on the chiricola side you needed um it appears you needed there was a um a apprenticeship a period in which you would go on four raids, not participate as a young male, but you would watch, perform camp chores, and after that you were full fledged male. You could you were eligible to marry, but to marry you needed horses mm-hmm. to give as a bride price and other goods. So you needed to go raid. And I think that's one thing we see and on intercept on the on the Spanish side you see the garrison increasing and in what's a relatively um not a not a lot of people in the not a lot of Spanish settlers in the area. They the smallpox epidemic of the 1780s. I think Elizabeth Finns, the great pox, you know, it comes sweeping through. But it's able to almost, you know, triple in size because men are willing to join the garrison. And one of the reasons is that's a good way to to get some status, get some access to, to goods, and then that that you gives you a better chance to get married. Mm-hmm. And we see this. Men will join the garrison, and about a year later, they will request to be married.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we see that going on. So, so even though this violence is going on, there's... I mean, I think that's one of the points I try to make in the book, that violence is, can be used to do things. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's being used to, to do things. Uh, it's, it's worth the risk. It's worth going out fighting, worth the risk being killed, because then you can come back and be married. And again, we're talking early modern period. This is how you become independent. You have to become married because there, you know, there's no... You can't drop your laundry off. You can't right. go buy prepared foods. All these things about keeping a household in, 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 in order—you you need you, you, you need a wife,
0: right? Right. To do those things, and so—and so, and I, and I have to ask because I don't remember from the book where did these women come from? That were, did, ha, ha, yeah. How did they, they yeah, weren't going out to Janos seem- themselves? Were they or?
1: And many of them were. And I find hmm. a lot of the wives were are listed as 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 natives of the Presidio. Interesting yeah and now I don't Now here's you know here's where here's the question I don't know is you know were these and we're talking about large extended relatives were these women who were living elsewhere in the the area who had kin at Hanos were they going there I mean were women going there to get husbands mm-hmm. yeah. um, because okay here's someone who has access to the supply system you know he this is someone who can take care of you know can take help take care of me in the same way you know, back and forth, so many of them seem to be locals and again that's something that's that you know our sociologists and anthropologists colleagues have pointed out that when you're dealing in these type of border and borderline situations, this ability to do violence is looked upon very very highly by yeah. my families because yeah. that's you know they need someone to it it is that protector mm-hmm. concept mm-hmm. Uh, that that does apply so but for the
0: uh Spanish, um, um, the Spanish soldiers who were posted there, I mean, this was not considered right. a very good post. This was what we would call hard duty, wasn't it? I mean, did Right. They, well, yeah. they were mainly
1: from the local area, too. huh. They were over, it's only, a few came from northern, a little farther south in northern New Spain, but most of them were from Hanos or from um, uh, the neighboring communities. This is a local force. Uh, officers may come, officers, some of the NCOs might have come from Spain, or or, uh, you do find a few of those, but the simple fact was the Spanish realized that the the horse handling skills and just the the knowledge of the terrain and just the sheer endurance necessary for this post was not to be found among a lot of folks except people who lived there. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: most of these presidios were overwhelmingly recruited from uh, local inhabitants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They really belonged to the locals more than Mm -hmm. anything else. Mm Um, so there were some Spanish forces sent into Sonora um uh and in also into uh, California and then up in to Washington, well Vancouver island for a little bit but these these Spanish forces typically had a lot of trouble with um just staying healthy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they were not used to the environment not used to the terrain
0: right so did the spanish ever attempt to um this is probably a bad analogy, but to uh, create a kind of final solution of the Chiricahua question? Or did the Chiricahuas ever attempt to completely wipe out the people of Hanos? Or, uh, or did, they, did they simply understand that they needed to keep raiding? In other words, was there anybody here who was really to try to force a solution to this problem? Right.
1: You do not... You see discussions like that in some of the colonial documents, but you're still dealing with this idea, okay, we know we need to... The Spanish authorities, the royal authorities would still see these Indians as spanish uh, uh, subjects mm-hmm. they 're still subjects of the crown, even mm-hmm. if they 're not christian and and so there is this continual no, we need to treat them uh, we need to treat them with some law of kindness if you surrender if they surrender you you know you don 't kill them you mm-hmm. you treat them with kindness you're you're not supposed to take captives though that was typically ignored as much as far more than it was probably followed. So, you don't see any discussions in the Spanish colonial period. You don't see any discussions like that. Uh, among the Apaches, that's a, that is a, a good question. I think we're dealing with such a small um, uh, size. I mean, they lived in family groups of probably no more than 10 or 20. I don't know if they even would have thought of such a thing. And if yeah. they had, I don't think they would have wanted it because mm-hmm. there was stuff they needed there. And if you are, I mean, if you're a young male, and this will become a problem, if you're a young male you and you haven't done all four of your apprentice rates yet you haven't gotten enough to get married you don't want it to stop right how are you going to get married right and that and that does now what the, the solution the Spanish did finally come up with was uh, a, a peace policy in which uh, they said look any Apache group that wants peace we will settle you know, near Presidio we will accept it and sell it we will give them rations so they don't have to raid and then we will go out and, with their help, attack other groups that have not yet asked for peace. And they were absolutely fine with this. This was, it was probably the most successful from the 1780s, and it lasted well into the 1830s, really. Didn't we just do that in Afghanistan? Yeah, and it is is—it is an ongoing. A, and, and I think, in terms of that, as, as your students who've been there will come back with, they got yeah, the Spanish essentially rented the Apaches for yeah. a generation or two. Right. Worked in Afghanistan, well, at least it seemed to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um and but again, but what's fascinating about that is is that and um and we actually as a there's a, a Gavino the Cordero who's writes one of the first ethnographies of the Apaches in 1794. And he had been a captain at Hano's in the 1780s. And so he's he's pretty knowledgeable about I mean he spent you know 20 years living amongst the Apaches I and mean, far more than mm-hmm. most anthropologists today do. Um and he was pretty well aware that look, we can we can we can give these folks rations, but we self understand that they need to do violence. Mm-hmm. So we need to take them with us when we go on campaigns. We know mm-hmm. they're going to do some raiding. We need to try to keep tamp that down as best we can. Mm-hmm. So both sides do this, but they're both are very wary. They're both still very carefully watching each other. They mm-hmm. know. And the violence doesn't go away, it just it, it, it drops to a certain
0: right. And so this is the period uh, in the book, yes, uh, 1786 to 1830. Yes. Where they developed this policy of basically um, uh, allying, or you might think of it as buying off. Yeah, buying off. That's a, that's yeah. a good description. Yeah, buying them off and then sending mm-hmm. them off to raid other people with the sort of... Right. You know, go, so the Spanish have a blind eye about this. So you should go ahead and
1: do right. this. And and, and what well, they, they do their best to, to, to prevent... And then one of things that happens is they do ultimately say, look, okay, you know, we're going to create a, a no man's land between Spanish settlements and, a, and they patch in the Apache and Chiricahuas. You need to move so far away. If we catch you in there um, and you're not on your way to pick up rations, you know, we will we'll attack you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they were, and, and they knew that, okay, if, even if they're in peace here, they may be raiding over there. Right. So they would, there would be continual work and messages back and forth, hey, you know, we got... And what's quite interesting is that, and this is where the generational split begins, is you begin to see leaders develop who are taking advantage of, the, among the Apaches, who take advantage of this peace policy. They're older men. They're married. They begin to take advantage of this, kind of use the Spanishes as as cops
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> against, their, against their own young men where, okay, look, you know, they went and raided, you know, I told them not to, you know, the horses are here, and it's these guys. Um, well, don't do it again, and take the horses back, and, and on you go. So... You, you do see some of that develop, and that 's probably ultimately why this policy breaks down is you yeah. get a generation that 's like, well, well, wait a minute how do we get status? How do we come to the fore um, if yeah, talk a break. little bit
0: yeah talk a little bit about this next period and the breakdown of that system and what happens
1: yeah well the the, the, the ultimate breakdown is is, is is i think it's twofold one is like to just mention there you have this rise of these these new these new uh, younger men, these leaders, who would—I mean, one of which we probably was—he was called Fuerte in the Spanish records. He probably Ed Sweeney, who's done most of the work. He was definitely Mangas Coloradas, who was one of the better-known Chiricahua leaders. Um, so they're 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 kind of itchy to to, to they, they don't really like this as much as they do. And at the time that they're getting starting to get itchy, this the Spanish are running out of the ability to ration because it's the. The Mexican uh, War for Independence mm-hmm. is going on. Uh, troops are being sent south to fight, uh, which the, the 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 men of Hanos and, and actually the Northerners despise doing. They hated going down to, to to fight the insurgents. It was long, and it was it was it was not the kind of work that they wanted to do. And it, they, a lot of the complaints around that they they lost their horses mm-hmm. whenever they went south. Um, and so you, the rationing declines. Uh, independence comes there's continual change of governments and finally basically the rations just run out and um, as the rations run out you have um, the uh, the uh, the Chiricahua are now going back into doing more raiding more of that's happening um, the, there's less and less ability to raise forces on the now Mexican side they don't have the, um, um don't have as many resources don't have the money don't have the ability as the, the Spanish crown had, and basically the Mexican, central Mexican government looks at the northern states and says, you're basically on your own. You know, this is your, it's a local problem, you deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so every state tends to take a different approach in many cases, and so it's easy to set across. So, you, you see this, and of course as this 1820s, 1830s are happening, well, now you have Anglo-American fur trappers coming into the regions, gun traders, gun runners this whole Santa Fe trail so you're seeing this this through this period becomes one in which all the older previous means of, of handling problems get, get upset mm-hmm. and get turned over and again the violence never ended um, the weariness never went away and when you start when you're no longer getting rations or you know, or the rations are much less um, both sides get weaker and get weaker that tends to make and tends to make them more willing to strike out first and that's a lot of what we begin to see is 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 you move far more into there are raids and there are retaliations but they, they appear to be and I don't have any you know I don't have I've not run any sort of regression analysis on numbers or what have you mm-hmm. but um, 1830s 1840s are definitely a period where you see far more raiding I mean my um, um, friend Brian DeLay, working on War of a Thousand Deserts I mean he picks up at least among the Comanche and Kiowa and Southern Cheyenne huge increases of raiding in New Mexico in the 1830s 1840s. So clearly, something is is going on in Southwest United States, northern Mexico, at the time. And so, uh, both sides typically fall. You see far more of this, um, like I said, of of raids and revenge. And what, what, of course, what's interesting is that these two communities actually know each other. They're quite familiar with each other. Mm -hmm. They've lived alongside for decades now. Um, You have uh, there's there's there are Apaches who've gone to school uh know how to speak and read and write spanish mm-hmm. um they write letters that are still in the archives
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and, and and about about problems so you see this this increase into integrate uh, and and retaliation as as both sides go forward both sides get weaker both sides get more worried therefore they're more willing to strike out before being struck and um and they're without rationing and the apaches have ever more reason to raid ever more reason mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Uh, to go down into Mexico. Mm-hmm. So near the end of the book, you talk about the uh, end game here, sort of how it right. all
0: comes unraveled. How does it all end up? Um,
1: the, the beginning of the end is is the creation of a border between US and, and Mexico coming across the region. And by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo 1848, the United States agrees to it will stop Indian raids into Mexico. And the Mexicans had insisted upon this, and I'm referring back to, to Brian DeLay's work, that they, they had convinced themselves that the Indian raids were at an instigation of the United States so the United States could then turn back around and stop the raids mm-hmm. into Mexico. Well, this, neither one was true. Me- Americans had convinced themselves that the Mexicans had been able to stop the raids because they were you know, yeah. ineffective and inefficient. <laughs> right. Well, now that wasn't true either. So you do have the creation of the border. You do have this creation of the United States saying, OK, wait a minute, you, you can't go, go raid right into Mexico. You have to stop that. You can't take captives. You, you can't do that. Um, so this sets up that dilemma on the Apache side is they're like, hey, wait a minute. Okay, if I go right into Mexico, I can get, be attacked in Mexico. And I come back in the States, they can't keep the stuff that I want to keep. So they cross back and forth about the, across the border. Of course, in the 1850s, well into the 1870s, Mexico enters into a series of, of, um, of, of, of civil wars and, and resistance. To, there's the War of the Reform in the 1850s. Um, the, the garrison of Hanos quits in support of one of a pronouncement in Mexico City um, and so they disappear but the community is still there uh, and by this time, far more fighting was being done by armed citizens as they called them, than, than by soldiers there just weren't a lot of soldiers around and so they're taking up responsibility for their own defense now of course it's com- you know we, we've gone from the Spanish regional view to a state view, now it's completely to a local com- you know, community fight almost uncoordinated with anyone else and so anytime they can get a peace deal with the Chiricahua, Anos will take it. Uh, Any time that they can't, okay, they won't they, they, they will fight. And so 1860s, you have the French intervention, and of course they the, the Mexican government has to retreat all the way up into Chihuahua almost into the United States. And 1870s you still have so um, you still have problems of, of uh, finally until Porfirio Diaz finally comes in and, 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 and takes, Becomes the, the final president for us in the 19th century, and so you have this incredibly weakening community. You don't have any sort of central organization, any sort of central. You have only a handful of troops, so the, the locals become responsible for their own defense. And this really sets up the problem where, okay, finally, the United States decides after a couple of uh, a couple of uh, uh, decades that the only way to stop this is to get all the Apaches and exile them to Florida. So they they go into into Mexico. Get the final bands that are that are loose and and, and moving around in Mexico. Geronimo being the primary leader of those bands. Um, Though was debatable how much of a leader in the, the Chiricahua sense he was. Um, take them, load them all up, and send them back to Florida, then allow them to go to Alabama, and then allow them to go to Fort Sill in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and then finally uh, in the um, early part of last century they they allow some to go back to the Muscalero but the Chiricahua never go back to their ancestral lands mm-hmm. they have never been allowed back um, I think there is a case for some Chiricahua are trying to make a claim on some land in southern New Mexico I haven't seen where that's that that, that has gone forward so that's the end of the, the Apache basically to stop them from being community violence in the United States this final exile you away mm mm-hmm. will send you completely away um, and this at a time when US policy was overwhelming and you could settle Indians somewhere near or around their ancestral lands. Yeah. On the Mexican side, um, you have these communities, they, they take defense in their own hands, this enters into their understanding of themselves, and so when the railroads arrive in northern Mexico, they, the, 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 um, the Mexican government begins to, um, much like the United States, they, they, they fund the railroads by allowing them to basically take land yeah. along the railroad lines. So well, that means it has to be surveyed and lands declared excess are then sold or given to the railroads to, to, to build the railroad. Mm-hmm. And this impacts a lot of communities that um, Alan Knight, who was the primary historian of the Mexican Revolution, refers to as uh, and Frederick Cotts also refers to as Sorano or Mountaineer communities, many of which were ex-Presidio communities like Vano's, that when the Mexican government becomes the threat, they're like, fine, they tangle up the old way. They saddle up, take their guns, and ride off and become... What Alan and Knight called the ideal recruits to start the Mexican Revolution, and the Mexican Revolution begins in 1910 in the north, and it is it's led by 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 men who are the descendants of these these armed citizens the Hanos, who are themselves the descendants of the original soldiers, and but in the long run they they, they lose that fight and and uh, and are, are forced into uh, in, in the northern Chihuahua there is some desire to take um, Hidalgo lands lands sizes are just, it would work great farther in central Mexico where there's rain, but not in the north. And that's all, that's been one of the long-standing issues of land in northern Mexico is you need, if you're going to run cattle, you need a certain amount of right. space. And uh, if you limit people to holdings, well, now you, you can't run as many cattle, environmental degradation, and so forth. So it's still it's still something of an issue um, mm-hmm. in, 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 that, in that part of Mexico.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's very it's very interesting. State power finally figures out what the final solution should be. Yeah.
1: It's a sad story. It, uh, it, it, yeah, and uh, yeah, I do find myself, yeah, writing. Yeah, there is a strategy used to Newman. But, um, yeah. you know, also point out, I mean, what, in some cases, you know, looking at me, I say this because I have to work for the state. Um, you know, what, <laughs> maybe I have that viewpoint, <laughs> you know, what, what else could they, yeah. I mean, in some cases, right. like, well, what um, else are you going to do? Uh, are yeah, you going uh, to allow... Yeah. You know, James. It's been written about. You know, we're talking now about the Comanche, about the Southwest. But you know, James Brooks' writing has said, "Look, it wasn't the United States had not come into the area. You probably still have this going on today." Yeah,
0: right. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I often think is you can't really act morally when all you have is bad choices.
1: And,
0: yeah. you know, it's really hard. Yeah,
1: you, you are dealing with the. Yeah, it's the best. and 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 there are many there, and and it is a. Yeah, but it, I ended up writing a tragedy and, and I'm yeah. not a tragic person. So. Yeah, no, I understand that.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking about the book today. Sure. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I really recommend that people read it. It's, it's a terrific book about a world that is really gone. It's just entirely gone, um, at least in this section of the world. Uh, so because if you go to the American Southwest today, you're not going to see any of this. So it's a, it, it was a world that existed in and of itself for a moment, and now it's simply vanished. So thanks for bringing it back to life, uh, Lance. Lance, why don't you, um, just to conclude the interview, why don't you tell us uh, or answer our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now other than
1: defending the United States?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which um, I hope is what you're doing most yeah, of the time. Yeah, <laughs> well,
1: actually, well, on, on, on my official job side, I'm trying to get – we a short study out on what u s. Northcom did to support uh, the various states New York and New Jersey during Hurricane Sandy uh-huh. recovery response to Hurricane Sandy.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, that's what we're doing. Uh, on my professional academic side, i'm I'm working on a couple of projects, uh, ones in writing, ones in research, but uh, on the the writing case, um I'm actually looking. And to, well, your point of, you know, when did that Southwest disappear? I'm looking at what I think is from the U.S. side at that point, and that's the, the Civil War in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, trying to basically so. reclaim it from the, the just the narrative of the Texan invasion of New Mexico, right. Right. or from just the narrative of Kit Carson versus the Navajo. So right. Both right. those are right. important. And try to point that 1860s is this multi-sided ethnic conflict with mm-hmm. Mescaleros, Apaches, Utes, Hicarias, anglo Hispanos, all of whom had their own goals and desires and, and, and so forth and how using those uh, the, the framework of Carson's three campaigns against the Musco the Navajo and the Kiowa and Comanche is kind of that that mm-hmm. that, 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 that cut point where that world ends mm-hmm.
0: Well it sounds like it, a terrific project and I'm absolutely certain that it will be every bit as interesting as this book Today we've been talking with Lance Blythe about his book Chiricahua and Hanos, Communities of Violence in the Southwestern Borderlands, 1680 to 1880. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, but I especially want to thank Lance for being on the show. Thanks, Lance.
1: Yeah, thanks again for having
0: me. All right, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.